Today I will begin this sixth and final teaching in the set, and this teaching is entitled, The War is in Your Mind. We've covered a lot of material. I can't go back through it. But as we were talking about the authority, we talked about Satan and where his authority came from. You have to know your enemy, and you have to know what power he has. And basically, most people believe that Satan had a superhuman, angelic power and authority. That's the consensus among the average Christian. And yet I show that basically mankind is the one that made Satan who he is. We gave him our authority and our power. He is not using a superhuman angelic power and authority. It's just mankind's authority that was given to us by God and we gave it to him when we obeyed him and disobeyed God. So actually it's nothing but a human power and authority that is being used against us and that means that Satan can't do anything against us without our consent and cooperation. Now if you understand this, this radically changes the way we are going to view spiritual warfare. I believe that there is a warfare going on, but it's like the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 that we are uh, warring against the wiles of the devil. That means his deception his lies, his trickery, his cunningness, his craftiness, and other scriptures in the Bible that talk about warfare. Let me read another one to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 3 it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Here it is talking about war, spiritual warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. These are warfare scriptures talking about our warfare and our weapons that we use, and notice what they accomplish. They cast down strongholds, imaginations, and bring into captivity every thought. All of these scriptures that are talking about doing spiritual warfare are talking about your mind. The war is in your mind. Satan is fighting us with thoughts. We counter him with the thoughts that God gives us. Now this is not the way most people are teaching spiritual warfare. There are people that are teaching that there's actually a system of demonic powers over every city that hover over it and that they can block your prayers and keep them from getting to God. God dwells out in space someplace and these demonic powers are in the physical atmosphere and you've got to get your prayers up through them. Now some of you that haven't heard this may think this is silly, but this is a prevalent doctrine in the body of Christ today and people really, really believe that you've got to clear a hole over your city, over your house so that your prayers can get through to God. I tell you, that is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that God in all of His power and in all of His glory indwells us. You don't need your prayers to get through the atmosphere. You don't need them to get above the ceiling. You don't need your prayers to get above your nose. That's the reason that you bow your head when you pray is so that you can look at God. He's right here. He indwells us. This whole concept, see, is just something that does not take into account the New Testament believer being God-possessed. God dwells on the inside of me, and because of that, I am not having to deal with these principalities and powers out here that are in me. The way that they are fighting me is through my thoughts, 
And the spiritual warfare in the Christian life is over your mind. You know, there's actually a group here in Colorado Springs who I love. They may take offense if somebody hears me say this. I don't mean to be critical, but I just really disagree with this. And they teach that when they first came to Colorado Springs, that the heavens were brass, that the heavens were hindered, that prayers weren't getting through. And so what they did was through spiritual warfare, through intercession, they opened up the heavens and they cleared up the heavens. And because of that, that's the reason their church has grown. That's the reason that we've seen great things happen in Colorado Springs, etc., etc. They claim that that's the reason that the um, crime rate went down. I think one or two years in a row, it went down significantly. And they claimed all of these things. Then they opened up this prayer center that operated, supposed to control prayer around the world. And it was all of our intercession and prayer that was making all of this happen. But what happened the next year when crime rate went way back up, when all of these things began to happen, when there were more murders than ever before? Does that mean that the heavens closed back up? Did they quit praying effectively? Did something happen? You know, there's a lot of things that influence this, and I'm not saying that Christians don't have an effect on the world around them. And, but our prayers, it's, it's not like this. It's not like that there are demons over a city that make a lot of murders happen. That's not how this happens. You know why there's a lot of murders in places? Because on the inside of the individuals, there are lies, there are deceptions. They have lost the battle for their mind and they have given their mind over to Satan. They are watching and listening to things and our society no longer is supporting moral values and those things are what's allowing it to happen. Now, am I saying that there aren't demonic powers in the air? No, I believe that there are. There's scriptural examples of it. But the way you deal with those things is by coming against the unrenewed minds of people. You have to preach the truth to people. You can't just pray and then because you are controlling this demonic power in the heavenlies, therefore indirectly you're controlling this person and you make them no longer be bad because you're binding this demonic power. That's not the model that the scripture presents. The scripture preaches that the way you do it is go in, you tell the people the truth, and the truth sets them free, and therefore they come out from under the control of these demonic influences that are around us. There, let me say it this way. There is zero, I mean zero, not just a few, not just a little, not one, zero scriptural precedence for the spiritual warfare and the battles of intercession that are being taught in the body of Christ today. Jesus never sent his disciples out to do spiritual warfare before he came into a place. He sent them out to announce that he was coming. That's like publicity. But he did not send them out to do spiritual warfare. Paul never drew upon the people to do spiritual warfare. He never encouraged that. He told us right here, here's a spiritual warfare scripture written by the Apostle Paul that our weapons are for casting down thoughts and imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 is a spiritual warfare scripture written by the Apostle Paul. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Not just stand against the demonic powers, but stand against the lies and the deception. Then in the next verse, he does mention that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. But how do they exert control? By controlling the thoughts of people. 
And they do that through the airways and through all these kind of things. The United States morals have decreased, I mean, just uh, amazingly in the last generation. They've actually started giving out license for homosexual marriages. They are now promoting things that 20 years ago could not have been imagined. How come that there is such a decline? Why is this going down? Because the American culture has become so addicted to radio and television and through those mediums and through movies and things like this, the morals of America are being polluted. If you take a a third world country that doesn't have access to the immoral movies, the immoral television, the immoral news media that is lying and deceiving, and if you took them and separated them from that, Satan wouldn't have near as much influence and control over them as he does a group of people who watch adultery, murder, lying, stealing, homosexuality, and all these kind of things. Satan has touched individuals who have raised up and have controlled the media, and Christians and non-Christians are watching the same ungodly media, and Satan is exercising influence through the thoughts he is planning in them. It is not just direct control from a demon controlling people, but he has to flow through physical things that control the way you think, the way you picture, your philosophy about things. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Isaiah 26, 3 says, The Lord will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon him, because he trusteth in him. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By spiritual warfare and binding the demons. No, it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Man, there's just so many things in Scripture that shows us, yes, there are demonic influences, but how do they influence us? Through thoughts. And they can't just give those thoughts directly. They have to influence a person, and then a person yields to Satan. Satan begins to educate them, put his lies, his deception in their life, and then they go out and influence another person. And I believe that the reason we see such a dominance of ungodly principles and perspectives today is because as a whole, the news media... The television, the radio, the movie industry is absolutely controlled and dominated by people who are under the influence of Satan. They are demonic in their attitudes and thoughts. You know, I actually saw a a statistic one time, and I don't remember exactly all the details, but I think that this is pretty pretty accurate, that uh, there was 95% of the American public who believe that there is a God. 5% atheists and agnostics. And yet, in the movie industry, the people in Hollywood who make these movies that influence and exert so much influence, it was exactly opposite. Ninety-five percent of the movie industry did not believe in God, or at very least were agnostic. They weren't sure about the existence of God. They were an exact opposite of the, of the uh, normal um, society. They are not a mirror image. They are an opposite mirror. And some of those producers, I read this thing where a producer said that he, sure, he was using his influence to change the Judeo-Christian ethic of America, 
to change us for morality, to get us out of this narrow-mindedness where we believed only in, uh, you know, a man and a wife as marriage. And he said he was out to change that. They have shows that that is their purpose. They have a political agenda. They are trying to make these statements. They're doing all of this. And you know what? They're effective with it. And this is how Satan is gaining the control and exerting the influence is because he's fighting for people's minds while the church, instead of fighting for the individual minds, is in their prayer closet trying to bind some demonic power. There is zero scriptural precedent for that. In the Bible, that is not the way that they approached it. The Apostle Paul went into uh, Corinth, which was a terrible demonic place. They had all of these pagan gods. In Athens, he walked in and saw all of these gods. There were hundreds of them. And he countered that, not by doing some spiritual warfare, getting the Christians together and binding anything, but he went to the marketplace. He called the people together, people who did nothing except sit around and try and learn something new. He had their attention, and he preached the gospel to them, told them about the unknown God, the one that they didn't truly understand. And he said, he's the one, he's the only true God. And he countered this junk. Paul went into Ephesus where there was the temple of Diana of the Ephesians and a statue that they believed fell down from heaven. And Paul went in and he countered these lies and deceptions and told people the truth. So much so that the uh, worship of Diana of the Ephesians literally ceased to be. They closed the temple down. And there has never been any demonic power operating through Diana of the Ephesians until the late 1900s when the intercessors resurrected her and made her the power behind all the Muslim movement and they went over and did this. They did. They had 20,000 people go over to Ephesus to do spiritual warfare and bind these demonic powers. Paul never did that. Jesus never did that. Peter never did that. They didn't encourage that. They didn't get the people together to bind all these demonic powers. They put their effort into preaching the gospel. Their prayers that they were prayed were like in a Acts chapter 4 where they said, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto us that we may preach your word with all boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy child Jesus. And then the place was shaken with the power of the Holy Ghost and they went out and Peter's shadow began to fall on people. And even as it, his shadow touched people, they were raised up and miracles happened and they saw their world changed, not through spiritual warfare, not through intercession, but through preaching the gospel. You know, the things I'm teaching here are not popular. I'm going to offend a lot of people because this is just, I mean, there's people that claim that they have been called to the ministry of intercession. And that is their whole life. They don't do anything else. They don't share the truth. They don't witness. They don't talk to people. They don't support social action. They don't do anything. They're just in their prayer closet praying. And there's a lot of people that claim that that is their ministry. You can't find that in Scripture. There isn't anybody in Scripture who had a ministry of only prayer. Now, all of us are supposed to pray. I'm not against prayer. But there isn't any such thing as a ministry of intercession. We are all supposed to intercede, but we are all supposed to go out and do something too. And some people are using this as a cop-out to keep from sharing the Word of God. I refer back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. It says, "...being born again..." not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. 
The way people get born again is by a seed being planted. The same way that children come through a seed being planted, you don't have a virgin birth. The stork doesn't bring children. You have to plant a seed and conceive that child in the same way people have to be conceived through the Word of God coming unto them. And if Satan can deceive us and keep us in a prayer closet to where we're just praying and asking God to do what He told us to do, and we aren't sharing the Word, and nobody's preaching the gospel, and we're afraid that we're going to offend somebody so we don't say the truth, then you know what? That is a great strategic advantage for the devil. I don't believe that the devil minds you praying as long as you're into this spiritual warfare and all of these things. I believe that Satan's inspired a lot of that. He's got you out here fighting a a ghost figure. It's like an enemy. If he could project a hologram and let you see an enemy coming over here, and so you go marshal all of your forces to fight this enemy that doesn't even exist, you exert a tremendous amount of effort, a tremendous amount of resources, and all of this on fighting something that doesn't exist, and it makes you vulnerable in the areas that do exist. And that's exactly what Satan is doing. He's gotten the body of Christ where we are fighting battles that don't even exist. We are tearing down things that don't even exist. Sure, Satan exists and his power exists, but he is not controlling people like pawns. Satan doesn't have absolute control. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that Satan, your adversary, the devil as a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. Satan doesn't have the power to control people. He is using nothing but the same human power and authority that was given unto mankind. Therefore, he cannot do anything to you without your consent and your cooperation. So therefore, what's the key in this whole thing? We've got an enemy, the devil, who would love to destroy mankind and you individually. So how do we deal with it? Go directly to the devil and bind the devil? No, what you do is deal with your thoughts because Satan can only deal with you. He can only gain with your consent and your cooperation. And all of that comes through thoughts. That's the reason that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The reason the truth makes you free is because the only power Satan has is lie and deception. And if you know the truth, then deception is no longer has any power. It's, it's totally declawed. It's lost its power once you understand the truth. The strength of us is to preach the gospel. Now, we need to pray so that we can be sensitive to God and yield to Him and hear clearly and be bold and speak, but we don't need to pray and do uh, 15, 20 hours worth of spiritual warfare to prepare things before we go in. You go in and preach the gospel, and the gospel will change the atmosphere. As you preach the truth, the truth will cause demons to flee. Jesus would walk into a place and demons would literally flee and run out and cry out and come out of people. Now, if Jesus was doing spiritual warfare the way it's being proclaimed today, there wouldn't have been any demons in those people to cry out. He would have already have dealt with all of this. They would have all been gone. But the truth is demons were present. Demons were even present at the Last Supper. How else could Satan have entered into Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper if he wasn't there? That's what the Bible says. You know what? Jesus did not do spiritual warfare the way it's being promoted today. It's been given a status and a position that it never should have had. And there is a lot of weirdness going on in the body of Christ today about spiritual warfare. You know, if the Lord was to tarry a hundred years, I have no idea that He's going to, 
But if he was to tarry a hundred years, I believe that people would look back on our day and this spiritual warfare and the weird stuff that is being taught and done, and they would look back and think, man, surely that was one of the greatest errors that's ever happened. It's We're so close to it right now, and it's so popular, so prevalent in the body of Christ that a lot of people don't see it for what it is. But I tell you, I'm just being bold and speaking out and telling you that there is not a scriptural model for spiritual warfare being done the way it's done today. Now, having said that, let me emphasize that I'm talking about a New Testament model for this. Some of the spiritual warfare stuff that's being taught in intercession is being taught from Scripture, but they're Old Testament Scriptures. And there's a huge difference between the way things were done in the Old Testament and the way they're done in the New Testament. Let me just give you some examples of this. In Exodus chapter 32, here's an example where Moses had been up on the mount and he had received the Ten Commandments. He had been there for 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the presence of God. God gave him these two tablets that literally were written on by the finger of God, and he communicated these Ten Commandments. And after the Lord had done this, here's what he said in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. The Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. You know, this is really interesting. The Lord told Pharaoh, Let my people go. But after they came out, and then they began to worship idols, and this is right after they made this golden calf and said, This golden calf is what brought us out of Egypt. God told Moses, He says, Your people. <laughs> this is kind of like, you know, a husband and a wife sometime. When the child wins all of the awards, they say, Look at my child. And then when they do something stupid, they say, Boy, look at your son. Look what he did. Well, God, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. God says, your people. In other words, he was willing to forsake them. He was willing to let them go. He was ticked at them. He, they have corrupted themselves. In verse 8, it says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. You know, God here is saying that He was mad at these people, and He was going to destroy them and start over with Moses and make an entire nation out of them. And notice the way that He said this here. He said in verse 10, he says, Let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them. The Lord here was saying to Moses, Moses, don't you try and hinder me. Don't try and talk me out of this. Don't plead for mercy so that I can give total vent to my anger and wrath and destroy these people. By saying it that way, God was saying, Moses, you have so much power and influence with me that if you go to pleading with me, you'll keep me from venting my anger on these people. Now, that's an amazing fact in itself, that God Almighty would be moved by any physical person. I don't believe it's because we're greater in power, greater in authority. It's just because of the great love that God has for us. And Moses, even though he wasn't a perfect person, even though Moses killed a person thinking that was bringing God's will to pass, and Moses wasn't perfect, he had failed... God loves us so much that when He finds somebody who has a heart for Him, He loves us. He respects us. And by doing so, that gives us power 
and authority in his life. Well, that is an amazing statement right there. And then here's the way Moses responded to this in verse 11. It says, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why did thy wrath wax hot against thy people? See, Moses put it back on God. God, these are your people. They aren't my people. Remember, they're your people. You've redeemed them. He says, Which thou broughtest forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a, great, with a mighty hand. Wherefore should... The Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou uh, swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and as the and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. So here's Moses reasoning with God and saying, God, the Egyptians are going to hear about this. They're going to think that it was because you were too weak to bring them into the promised land. You know, this is amazing, the logic that he had. And then Moses said this in the last part of this 12th verse. He says, Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. That is amazing that a man would tell God to repent. And you know what's even more amazing? Look at verse 14. It says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto the people. Here is an example of where Moses confronted God and said, God, turn from your fierce wrath. Repent. And God repented. Now that was intercession. That was an Old Testament example of intercession where Moses stood between the people who were about to be destroyed and pled with God to turn from his wrath. Now you will have examples. People will take this example and teach spiritual warfare and intercession today and say that's the way that we need to pray for uh, pray to God today. Oh God, don't destroy the United States. Don't destroy England. Don't destroy these countries. God have mercy. God repent. God turn from your fierce wrath. But you know what? That was appropriate for Moses to pray that because Jesus hadn't come and made the provision. Jesus hadn't become the intercessor to end all of that type of intercession. So therefore, it was appropriate for Moses to pray that way. But under the new covenant, things have changed. Here's a scripture in 1 Timothy and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus became a mediator that stood between us and God. And God was holy, man was unholy, therefore deserving of the wrath of God, and there needed to be a mediation. Before Jesus came, Moses was a mediator. It says this over in Galatians chapter 3, that the Old Testament law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Moses is who that's talking about. Moses was a mediator between God and man. The word mediator, according to the dictionary, means a person who stands in between two parties that are in conflict with each other and tries to bring them into harmony, into agreement. God was opposed to man because of our sin. And under the old covenant, Moses served as a mediator. He says, repent, turn from your fierce wrath. And God repented. But in the new covenant, it says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is only one mediator 
between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If Moses was to somehow or another come from the Old Testament into days, uh, truths into the New Testament realities that we have as believers. And if Moses was to start pleading with God to repent and turn from his fierce wrath, he would be anti-Christ. He would be against Jesus' mediation, thinking that it's not enough and that I've got to add to it. It was appropriate in the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't come and hadn't been the mediator. But in the New Covenant, there is only one mediator, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, you are wrong to plead with God and intercede and beg for His mercy when the truth is His mercy has already been poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is no longer ticked off. I'm going to say some things here that just are so contrary to what most people believe that some of you may swallow hard, but I ask you to take what I'm saying, go to the Word, and verify it. But you know what? If you're pleading for God to have mercy and not bring judgment on America, God's going to destroy America for our ungodliness or whatever country it is that you're listening to. If you're pleading for God to have mercy and not destroy it, you know what? You're, you're trying to take the place of Jesus. Jesus has already pled for God's mercy upon us, and God is not about to destroy America or any place in Europe or Africa or any of these places. Am I saying that that means that there, therefore there's no problem since God has already had His wrath appeased that we don't need to worry about it? No, we're in the process of destroying ourselves. It's appropriate to say, Father, I thank you that Jesus has already bought your mercy and your grace, and you aren't out to destroy this country, but God, we are doing a great job of destroying it ourselves. People are yielding to devil. We are giving place. I mean, we are about to implode upon ourselves. Father, give me wisdom. Help me to go out and touch people. See, that's the reason I'm on radio, television, putting out tapes and books. I'm not just praying and asking God, oh God, do something, change these nations. Oh God, have mercy on us. I believe God has already had mercy on us, but the truth is we don't know what He's done. We've been lied to. Most people are more moved by the movies, the television programs, the books that they read, the news, than they are by the Word of God. We don't know the truth. And so I am on television and on radio and in book and in, uh, on tapes and different things putting out the truth, telling people the truth. And I believe that this truth is changing things, and hopefully it's going to cause a positive response, a revival in America. But I'm not just pleading with God and asking Him to send a revival without flowing through people. It comes through people. It comes as we preach the truth, as we tell people the truth, and that's what I'm doing. See, in the Old Testament, people pled with God, like Moses, saying, Oh God, repent of your fierce wrath. But in the New Testament, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And God has forever satisfied the demands and the wrath of God. It's been satisfied. Does that mean that there's not going to be any problems if we don't seek God? No, there's plenty of problems. But there are problems because we are yielding ourselves to Satan, and Satan is going to still kill and to destroy this nation or whatever nation. Yes, we need to change. There needs to be a total repentance. There needs to be mass uh, repentance and turn around of going the other direction. But not so that God won't judge us. God has already put judgment upon His Son so that I don't have to be judged. You know, when I first got started in the ministry, I had this little saying that if God doesn't judge America for our sins, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
because Sodom and Gomorrah isn't, wasn't as bad, I don't believe, as America's gotten to be. I mean, America is just going down the tubes morally. There's some terrible things that have happened. So I used to say, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But now, with the revelation that I've got, understanding that God judged Jesus so that I wouldn't have to be judged, so this nation wouldn't have to be judged, now here's the way I say it, that if God does judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Jesus because Jesus bore our punishment and our judgment and our separation so that we wouldn't have to bear it. God has had his wrath placed upon his son and he is not about to judge you or judge this nation. This nation is about to be destroyed if we don't change, not because God's judgment, but because we are giving Satan inroads into it. When you yield yourself to Satan, you become defenseless. You become his servant and he comes for no other purpose except to steal, to kill and to destroy. So man, it's stupid to yield to the devil. We need to change and start submitting ourselves to God. Look over here in Genesis uh, chapter, where is this? I believe it's chapter 18. And this is where God appeared unto Abraham. And God told Abraham that he was sending two angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah to check and see if it was as bad as what he had heard. And uh, if it was, he was going to judge them. And so here's uh, Abraham's response to this news about the potential judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in verse uh, 20, this is Genesis 18:20. The Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the man turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty uh, righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then will I spare all the place for their sakes. So here's Abraham pleading with God and saying, God, you aren't going to destroy the righteous people that live in this city. He says, that's not the way that a righteous God would be. He says, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you spare the city? And he said, I'll spare it if there's 50 righteous. And then Abraham said, how about if there's 45? And he says, if there's 45, I'll spare it. How about 40? And he says, I'll spare it for 40. He says, how about 30? And he says, I'll spare it if there's 30. He gets him all the way down to 10. And you know what? If Abraham would have just kept going, I believe he could have got him down to one righteous person. And that would have been Lot. The Bible says over in the book of Peter that Lot was a righteous man. There was one righteous person in Sodom and God would have spared it if there would have been righteous people therein. Now, not even factoring the new covenant, Jesus' atonement and things into the, fact, into the mix, even forgetting the New Testament like most Christians do today. For a moment, let's just forget the New Covenant and say just based on this, that God will not destroy a country if there are righteous people therein. And you know what? Even though America has become wicked, 
and vile in many ways. I believe it's the best place on the face of the earth. I've traveled to all of these countries, and I love America. But I'm saying compared to what God wants it to be, it has fallen a long, long ways. So don't get the wrong impression. This same thing could be said about your country, Africa, India, the Mediterranean, all across Europe, England, any of these countries. None of us are living the way that God intended us to. We are allowing and promoting things completely contrary to God's kingdom. And yet, despite all of that, there are righteous people in every one of those countries. And based on this scripture, even if you didn't factor Jesus' atonement into it, God, the old covenant, God, before the atonement was made, would not destroy the nation if there were righteous people therein. That right there ought to stop some of this stuff that's going on. Because in America, there are hundreds of thousands of righteous people, people who are born again, who love God, who are seeking God. And we may not be dominating all of the airwaves yet. We may not be controlling the movies yet. But you know what? There are righteous people here, and because of that, God would not destroy it. Now you factor into that the fact that over again in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Jesus has become the mediator between God and man. And now... He is the only mediator. He forever satisfied God's wrath. You factor all of that into it, and once again, you see that this old pattern of intercession where you're pleading with God to have mercy and not pour out your wrath, you'll find out that this Old Testament pattern does not fit the New Testament reality. Much of the intercession and spiritual warfare stuff that is being promoted, they're going back to Old Testament scriptures and they're promoting these things just as if Jesus hadn't come. They're saying, in a sense, you be a mediator. You stand between God and man. You plead with him to turn from his wrath. Don't allow this to happen. Well, the truth is Jesus has already done all of those things. Jesus is the only New Testament mediator. And if you are trying to pray the way Abraham prayed in Genesis 18, the way that Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 32, then you know what? You are against what Jesus has already done. You are acting as if he hasn't come, as if his atonement wasn't enough, as if his intercession wasn't enough, and you've got to add to it. That is not the truth. Jesus has already done this. So when we're talking about authority and we're talking about the devil, you need to recognize that Satan has already been dealt with by God. Jesus has entered the wrath of God. God's not pouring out his wrath. And all you've got to do is just stand and enforce what God has already done. And the way you do that is by telling people the truth. The war is in your mind. Satan is not controlling people through some demonic power. He's controlling them through lies and through deceptions. Tell the truth. Get rid of the lies and people will be set free. Man, I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. The war is in your mind. That's where the battle is raging. And much of this spiritual warfare, spiritual intercession teaching that is going around is denying the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And I tell you, that's not smart. He is the intercessor to end all intercessions where you are pleading and telling God to repent. The New Testament intercessor just stands there and praises God for what he's already done and offers themselves as a tool, a channel for God to work through. 
And then the real focus, again, as I've said many times, has to be on the way we think. You don't just pray for a person and wait on God to touch them without human intervention. God flows through people. God uses us. We have to preach the gospel. Romans chapter 10, I believe it's verse 15, says, How can they believe on him whom they have not heard? How can they hear except somebody preach? How can they preach except they are sent? Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, those scriptures make it very clear that you just can't pray and get a person saved. Pray and get a person healed. Pray and get a person anything. You've got to speak the word of God. Faith for those things comes by hearing the word of God. Here's another Old Testament example that I've heard used to teach that you just have to stand and plead and beg with God for your loved ones to be saved, for healings to happen, etc. Here's an Old Testament example, Numbers chapter 16. This is right after Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses, and the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all that they possessed right down into the pit, and then it closed on them. And, of course, the people just ran and screamed out of fear. But then it says in uh, Numbers chapter 16 and verse 41, But on the morrow all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked towards the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. Here's God upset because they've come against Moses and Aaron thinking it was their fault, when the truth was it was God that performed this miracle through them. And in verse 46 it says, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire thereon from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly into the congregation, and take up and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from, from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides them that died about the matter of Korah. So here's an example where God got angry at the children of Israel again. Moses recognized it. He told Aaron to take a censer and put coals from off the altar on it. This altar symbolized prayer. It was constant, a sweet savor unto God, and that's what it symbolized was prayer. So he took this censer. He put, in a sense, prayer. He interceded, and he went and stood between the people who had already died of the plague and those who were yet to die. And when the plague reached the prayers, reached the intercession, the plague stopped. There was 14,700 people die before Aaron could run in there with this censer and stop the plague. And I've literally heard people teaching on New Testament intercession say that this is the way it is. There is a holy God, an unholy man over here, and God is so ticked off at them that he's angry. God is about to destroy people. He's sending hurricanes, tornadoes, tidal waves, 
all kinds of tragedies, the AIDS epidemic. God is doing these things. The wrath of God has begun. And what we have to do as intercessors is through our prayers stand between God and these people who are deserving of His wrath and plead for mercy and, and calm Him down and get Him to settle down and sit back down on the throne so that He won't destroy the human race. And people are preaching that. Well, in a sense, that's what Moses did. That is exactly what he did. But you know what? Again, I refer to the scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that says in the New Testament, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. There is no other mediator. There's no other mediation needing to be done. When Jesus died, he forever satisfied this wrath of God. God is not ready to destroy this nation or any other nation. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't deserving of it, but I'm saying God placed our wrath, our punishment for our sins and our rebellion towards Him upon Jesus, and He's not giving us what we deserve. It's not God that's about to destroy this nation or to destroy an individual. There are some people that you know you deserve the wrath of God. It's not that you doubt that God exists. You just don't think He'll do anything for you because you know you aren't living the life that you should. But you know what? God's speaking to you right now. And the Lord's telling you that Jesus has already borne your punishment. Jesus has already suffered your pain. God is not the one that's bringing tragedy in your life. And you may be saying, but man, I've got all kinds of problems. I thought thought this was God's judgment. No, you've yielded yourself to Satan. And Satan comes for no purpose except to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what John 10.10 says. So yes, your life is a mess, but not because God's judging you, because God's wrath is upon you. God placed His wrath against your sins upon Jesus. And all you have to do is humble yourself and receive the forgiveness that God offers as a gift. And you don't have to plead with God and beg with Him to save you. He's already done it. He's already dealt with it. It's already a done deal. You don't need to do that on an individual basis, nor do you need to do it on a collective basis for a nation. God's wrath has been satisfied. And if you are trying to say, repent, turn, oh God, please have mercy. If you are trying to do something like that, then you're trying to improve upon what Jesus has done. And I can guarantee you, Jesus did a much better job at it than what you could ever do. You don't need to plead with God. God is already towards us. He already loves us. He is not ready to destroy this nation. This nation is in the process of being destroyed through our own wickedness, through yielding to Satan. Satan is about to destroy us, but it's not God. God wants to redeem this nation. He wants to turn us back to Him. And what he needs is people to get off of their knees begging him for what Jesus has already provided. And he needs people to stand up and start taking this good news and say that God's not mad. God's not in a bad mood. God's not ticked off. God loves you. God wants you to be free and tell people the truth. And it's the truth that's going to set people free. You know, I'm not going to go back through all this because I've already done it in a previous teaching, but I talked about praying for the lost Most people are pleading with God as if it was up to God whether the lost gets saved, but it's not. He's already made the atonement. He's paid for their sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to convict and to deal with people, but people have a choice. And one of the biggest reasons they aren't making the right choice is because they aren't hearing the good news of the gospel. They are being lied to by the devil. Satan is inspiring it, but the people are the ones that are saying, 
that there are no absolutes, that homosexuality isn't wrong, adultery isn't wrong, all of these things aren't wrong, and Satan, through these lies, has just dropped people's guard, their resistance towards evil. They've embraced evil, and because of it, welcomes Satan right into their life. He's blinded their hearts, and the only antidote for it isn't spiritual warfare, binding demons and begging God for mercy, but the antidote is us standing up and preaching the gospel, telling people the truth, getting the truth to people. And I tell you, it's not going to be done with just words. It's like the Bible talks about, we need to demonstrate. Jesus had to have miracles to validate what he was saying. He says, it's the miracles that I perform that prove that I'm from God. If Jesus needed proof that he was of God, I can guarantee you I need it, you need it. We need to start demonstrating the supernatural power of God and telling the truth, and people will turn to the Lord. You know, I had an instance recently when I was in Birmingham that there was a woman who uh, met me out before the meeting started, and she had been in the hospital, and she'd been laying flat of her back in the hospital watching me on television and hearing me say these things. This woman was given up to die with cancer. Her mother had died the previous year of cancer, and this woman was not only sick in her body, but sick in her mind, sick in her heart. There was hopelessness and fear because she had seen other people die. And the doctors had told her there was nothing they could do, just die. She was laying in a hospital bed with all of these tubes running in her. She watched my program, saw that I was going to be in Birmingham, pulled the tubes out, checked herself out of the hospital, and came to get prayer. I prayed with her. She was instantly healed. Every bit of her pain, every bit of all of the symptoms of cancer were gone. And then at the end of the service, when I gave an invitation for people to get born again, this woman came forward, and she had never been born again. She got healed, delivered of cancer, born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, checked out of the hospital, checked into the hotel, and stayed there the next three days and attended the meetings. Not bad, amen. And you know what? Because this woman saw the power of God in demonstration, she got born again. See, we have to speak the truth to people. And let me just say some things. I'm not trying to be mean or hard against anybody, but I'm trying to pop our bubble. I believe that Satan has established some of the doctrines that are held most dear in the body of Christ, and it's just rendering us ineffective. I'm not trying to be critical of people, but I'm trying to make my point. This woman, if she hadn't have been watching my television programs and hearing the truth, you know, I don't doubt that there was somebody praying for her, praying that God would heal her. But they didn't. she didn't get healed through somebody's prayer. She got healed because she heard me speaking the truth, giving examples, things that the Holy Spirit used to quicken her faith. And this woman, who wasn't even born again, pulled the tubes out of her body, walked out of the hospital room and came there. She had faith imparted unto her because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. And I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but I'm saying that there were people probably praying for her that if it would have been left up to them, she would have died. But you know what? You share the truth. The truth comes to people. The truth begins to tear down the lies, the deception, the strongholds of the devil. Faith rose on the inside of this person. And then she came and she received salvation, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and her healing because somebody was on television telling her the truth. 
Man, I don't know how to make that any simpler. And yet that is not the modus operandi of the average Christian. That is not our method of operation. Instead, what we do is just pray and ask God to somehow or another touch him. And we think it's just going to be a sovereign work of God. God does everything he does through people, specifically through us speaking the truth. He told Jeremiah, he says, because you speak this word, my word will be in your mouth fire and this people would and it shall devour them. In another place it says, is not my word like a hammer that breaks in pieces? This is the reason you've got to speak the word. And I tell you, we have just somehow or another gotten away from this and we have diverted and put a lot of our energies into pleading and asking God to do things that he's already done. That is ineffective. We have gotten into a lot of binding Satan and commanding Satan to let people go, thinking that if we pray hard enough that when Satan removes, people just instantly get born again. That's not true. It's not what the Word says. People have to be born again by the incorruptible seed, the Word of God that lives and abides forever. I tell you, these are some powerful, powerful truths that I've been sharing. And this is basically some of the benefit that I've gotten through this understanding of our spiritual authority, the believer's authority. You know what? I now now realize that Satan doesn't have power to make me do anything. You know, this old Flip Wilson saying about the devil made me do it is absolutely wrong. Satan can't make you do anything. All he can do is lie to you. And if you believe his lie, then you empower him to accomplish that and to push forward his agenda. But he cannot do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. That's the reason that the battle is not against demonic powers directly. Satan has been stripped. The only power Satan has is deception. This is how he came against Adam and Eve. If you went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you would find that he didn't come in some lion, some bear, some tiger, some mammoth, and he didn't intimidate Eve into submission because he had no power to do that. You know how he came against them? with words, with deception. He chose the most cunning animal that God had created, the most subtle, which means cunning, sly, crafty, deceptive is what that word means. He chose the snake because he had no power to force Eve into doing anything. What he did was come and use words to deceive her. If she would have stood and have evaluated those words and refused to allow ungodly words... Words that countered what God said have any influence on her. She couldn't have been tempted and she would not have committed that sin and have plunged the whole human race under the authority and dominion of the devil. It all happened through words. And this is still how Satan is fighting us today. He fights us with words, with thoughts. The battle is right between your ears. It's not out in the heavenly places. It's not doing all of these things. The battle is between your ears. And I tell you, every word that you hear, the words that I'm speaking are based on the Word of God. They come as a result of the Word of God, and therefore they're releasing life. But if you aren't listening to words that are consistent with what God says, then you are listening to words that bring death. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. It didn't say death and life and a whole lot of stuff in between that is just idle and non-productive. 
No, it says in Matthew chapter 12, I believe it's verse 35, every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Every word. There are no such things as idle, non-productive words. Every word that you hear over radio or television is either ministering life or it's ministering death. If you don't believe that and you say, oh, it doesn't bother me. I can watch these X-rated movies. I can watch lying, killing, stealing. It doesn't affect me. You know, I'm stronger than that. I am a mature adult. I can handle it. Well, then you know what? You're missing one of the great truths of the Word of God. Here's a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 33. It says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you say, well, I'm a, I'm a mature adult. I can handle this. It doesn't bother me. You're deceived. Evil communications corrupts good manners. Every word that you hear, every word over television, every word over radio, every word that any person speaks is either ministering life or it's ministering death. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go into a monastery and shut everything off and take a vow of silence and never hear anything. That's not what I'm saying. You will encounter some unbelief, but you know what? You can certainly, every television set that I've ever seen, our radio, has an on and off knob. You don't have to just sit in front of it and take whatever's offered to you. I've literally found myself doing that before, just, you know, having nothing specific to do, wanting to kick back, watching television, and I look and go through, and there's nothing on, and I just watch something for the sake of watching it, not realizing that that's pouring junk in me. And you know what? I have to deal with this the same as anybody else. But you know what? You need to recognize that Satan is fighting for you, and the way he's doing it is with these negative words. Every word is either releasing life or it's releasing death. You can't change that. The one thing you can change is whether you listen to it or not. You don't have to swallow it. You can get to where you start listening to words that minister life unto you rather than death. The choice is up to you. I want to end this up by using this scripture from 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 2. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I've already referred to this a number of times in this teaching, but this kind of summarizes the last tape in this teaching about the war is in your mind. And many people are out there just trying to bind the devil and rebuke this or intercede and plead with God to have mercy on them and pour out His power. This makes it very clear that grace and peace is multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It comes through knowledge. Your mind is the key to these kind of things. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word for transformed is metamorpho. It's the word that we get metamorphosis from. If you want to change from being a creepy, crawly thing to something that is beautiful and flies, if you want that kind of transformation in your life, you've got to renew your mind. And there's a lot of people that are trying to take a shortcut. They are keeping their mind in the gutter, they're listening to the things of this world. They allow the sewage of the world to flow through them, and then they want the results that God produces. And they think, if I'll just pray and ask, I can receive. You know what? There's much more to it than just praying and believing. You've got to cooperate 
And Satan hinders God through our thoughts. And the way that God operates and controls and dominates us is when we get our heart and our mind stayed upon Him. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If you want life and peace, then become spiritually minded. John 6.63 says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. And they are alive. Being spiritually minded is being word-minded. It's thinking on what God has to say about your situation instead of what the world has to say. And so being spiritually minded is just being word-minded. And if you are word-minded, you'll have life and peace. This verse is saying grace and peace is multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God. This is just so simple. I just don't understand why people struggle with this the way they do, but they just think negatively, they adopt the mindset of the world, and then they wonder why they don't have peace. You know, I've listened to some things on the radio where I get nearly all of my news is just off a little three-minute news bites on the radio. I don't watch hardly any television. I don't trust the media. And uh, I figured if it's really, really, really important, it'll make the radio in those little three-minute bites, and that way I can... uh, pretty much, you know, handle three minutes of anything negative that the world has to say. But even in those little three-minute bites, people are talking about the increased terror threats and what you're going to do and that there's going to be a huge terror bombing this summer. And you know what? I can't say that there isn't going to be, but what's the correct response to this? Well, see, if you just listen to what the world has to say and listen to all of this, you aren't going to have peace. You are going to be in turmoil. But if you listen to God's Scripture, if you go by the Word of God, like there's thousands of examples, but one that pops to mind is Psalms 91, where it says that no weapon, or excuse me, that's uh, Isaiah 54, 17, but that's a great one too. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, thus saith the Lord. But over in Psalms 91, it says... A thousand will fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but the plague shall not come nigh you. Only with your eyes shall you see the reward of the wicked, but it's not going to happen to you. There is prosperity promised to us and protection and all of these things. And if you will operate in it, those things will work for you. And you know what? If you keep your mind stayed on what God said, how He will protect you. If you go to examples of God's supernatural protection over people in the Word of God, and if that's the way your thinking goes, then you'll have peace. If you let your mind go the way that the world is trying to cause it to go and dominate it and put fear in you, then you're going to have those things. This is just so simple. Grace and peace comes through the way you think. Think properly and you will have grace and peace. You'll have joy and peace. You'll have all of these things. You don't get it just by prayer. You get it through the knowledge of God. And then the next verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That makes it very clear. All things that pertain unto life and godliness come through the knowledge of God. All things, not some things, not a lot of things. Not a few things, all things. This means that if you're sick in your body, you've got a knowledge problem. If you're poor, you've got a knowledge problem. If you're depressed, you've got a knowledge problem. 
If you're inferior and insecure, you've got a knowledge problem. If you're fearful, you've got a knowledge problem. Everything that you need, the antidote to any problem is the knowledge of God. Most people don't believe that. Most people believe that if you have an emotional problem, you go take a pill for it. It has nothing to do with you. It's not your choices. There's no responsibility to you whatsoever. It's just the way that your hormones are. It's just the way your chemistry is. It's what this person did to you. All of those things are wrong from God's Word. If you would accept the responsibility, go to the Word of God and start thinking the way the Word says. It says the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusteth in him. That's Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I'm saying this every way I can think to say it, that Satan's only way to dominate you is through lies, deceptions that come at your mind. God operates through you as you think in line with Him. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. The bottleneck, the key, the avenue through which everything funnels, whether it's demonic or godly power, is all centered around the way you think. And that has not been the way that the church has operated. Instead, they've been trying to go out here and bind these demonic powers, not control what the demonic powers are saying and putting forth, not the lies, not limit the lies, not counter it with the truth. Matter of fact, many times you'll hear Christians even say, now be careful, you might offend somebody. I tell you what, if I was careful about offending people, I wouldn't be on television. I'm saying things that are offending lots of people. I'm saying things that are contrary not only to the secular world, but to the Christian world. I've got Christians and unbelievers mad at me. But you know what? At the same time, it is setting people free. You've got to speak the truth. We've got to tell people the truth. It's the truth that sets people free. And this is not the way that the church has been operating. I tell you, the war is in your mind. And that's what this verse is saying, is that all things that pertain unto life and godliness come through the knowledge of Him that called us to glory and virtue. And then in verse 4 it says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So it says that, talking about the knowledge of God, it says, Through this knowledge of God are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. You know what that's saying? The Word of God is the knowledge of God. These promises are the knowledge of God. And it goes on to say that through these we can become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You partake of God's divine nature, not through prayer, begging for it, pleading, asking God to move, but rather through the knowledge of Him. You've got to get your thinking straightened out. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Boy, this is powerful stuff. And so I've just been saying this over and over and over. But you know what? The war that Satan is fighting against you is in your mind. It's not out in the heavenlies. The battle is right between your ears. And man, you've got to get hold of this. And then you've got to start renewing that mind. Let me go back and use another passage of Scripture. I haven't got time to really go into this in depth. I've got a teaching on this entitled Hardness of Heart. If you would call in, it is on our tape list. And uh, you can get it through calling in or getting on our website. But in there, one of the things that I teach is from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 15. 
And this verse says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Now this is talking about Abraham and Sarah. They used to live in Ur of the Chaldees, which was over around Babylon in that area. God told them to leave there and come into what we know today as Israel and told them that someday they would inherit that land. Abraham actually entered into the promised land when he was about 75 years old. He lived to be 175 and he never did inherit that promise. He had to buy one parcel of ground to be able to bury his wife in, but he never inherited the promise in his lifetime. It was generations later when the Israelites actually came in and possessed the promised land. And so how did he remain faithful for those hundred years of his life to this promise, to this goal that God had given him? It says here that truly, if they had been mindful of the country they came out of, they might have had opportunity to have returned. What this is saying, for them, opportunity to go back to Ur of the Chaldees would have been sin. It would have been a temptation. It would have been rebellion at God because God told them to leave that land and their family and come into this land that He would show them. So you could say it this way. Their opportunity to sin or their temptation was linked to what they thought. If you think on things that provide you with temptation, then temptation will come. But here is the reverse side of this, and this is also true, that if you refuse to think on things that gender temptation, you won't be tempted. Now that is nearly too good to be true. Here's another way of saying it. You can't be tempted with what you don't think. Man, that is simple. And yet it's amazing how people miss this little simple truth. Somehow or another, we have adopted the idea that we just need to be informed of all of the junk that's going on in the world. You need to know about all perversions. We need to know about every rotten thing that there is, and yet that's not what the Word of God teaches. I believe it's Romans chapter 16, verse 19. But anyway, it says, I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning that which is evil. Simple, actually retarded to where you just don't know things. You're, you're ignorant of it. He wants us not to be well-versed in all these things. Remember the original temptation against Adam and Eve was the desire to know good and evil, to know more. God gave them all the knowledge they needed. He told them everything good. He didn't want us to know the evil. And yet today we feel like we have to know the depths of all of the evil of what everybody else is doing. By doing that, you open yourself to temptation. You cannot be tempted with what you don't think. And see, if we would just win the battle for this mind, if we would quit exposing ourselves to all of the junk that Satan is offering through this world and get to where all we did was think on the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, all we'd be tempted with is the Word of God. That's the way that it works. You know, I am a living example of what we're talking about. I was raised in a situation, and it wasn't totally my environment because my brother and sister were raised in the exact same environment I was raised in, and yet they went different directions. I mean, they got into some serious trouble, had problems. They've now recovered. They're doing good. They're both serving God. But I'm saying that my brother and sister went off the rails for a period of time. But you know what? For whatever reason, I just believe the things that were told me. I was raised in church, and I believe those things. I, I, pre, I presume, I don't actually remember this, but I assume that I was told about homosexuality, but it wasn't for me. 
<laughs> so I didn't think about it. it I never uh, gave any attention to it. I presume that I heard about prostitution and adultery and sexual immorality, but that wasn't for me. That wasn't the way that I was told that I was supposed to be, so I never thought about it. And you know what? As a result of that, I was so naive that when I was 18 years old, my mother took me on a trip that we went over to Switzerland and Europe and we traveled around. And the very first stop was in New York City. And uh, this was a whole tour group. It was a group of youth that were going over to Bern, Switzerland to a Billy Graham uh, thing that he was holding in Bern, Switzerland. So anyway, I was staying with a bunch of guys. My mother was with some other women and things like this. At 18 years old, I got plucked out of my controlled environment and planted in downtown New York City. And I tell you what, I was exposed to things that I had never seen or heard of. I didn't even know that they existed. And because I was naive, I remember going down to 42nd and Broadway, which those of you that are familiar with that, that's, there's a tremendous amount of prostitution and things there. There was about 100 women lined up along this wall. And I didn't have a clue. It never even dawned on me. I never even wondered why they were there. It just didn't dawn on me. I thought, what a great opportunity. And I took tracks and I went down the road, passed out a track to every one of these prostitutes and witnessed to them. But because I didn't know what they were, guess what? I wasn't tempted. I didn't know what was going on. And I was out on the streets at 2 o'clock in the morning witnessing to people. I'd never seen that many people in my life. I mean, a little country boy from Texas, this was uh, really a shock treatment for me. And while I was out on the streets, a pimp came up to me. And this pimp tried to sell me one of his girls. And he was using the, you know, the language of the street and stuff. I didn't know what he was talking about. That's not the way anybody I knew talked. And anyway, this guy tried for about 10 minutes. And finally, I remember this guy just looking at me, and he turned around, threw up his hands, and walked off shaking his head, probably wondering what rock did this hick crawl out from. And uh, I had to go back to my motel room. I went to telling the guys that I was staying with. I said, you'll never believe what this guy was saying. And I started saying those words to them. And they had to explain to me that he was a pimp, that he was trying to sell me a prostitute. And you know what? Then I was embarrassed because I was so naive. I I didn't even know what the guy was talking about. But here's my point. Because I didn't know what he was talking about, because I hadn't thought that way, I wasn't aware of the terminology, I wasn't even tempted. You know, there are many of you that just, you have to fight temptation and it's like you have to white knuckle it and you can't understand why it is so hard to live for God. It's because you allow so much junk to be planted in you. You're trying to rebuke lust and rebuke this sexual addiction. And you're trying to rebuke pornography and all of these things and do these spiritual battles and tear down these demons and overcome this stuff. And the problem is you're sitting there looking at this stuff, listening to things, watching television. I tell you, television today will expose you to more sex than your great-grandparents saw in an entire lifetime. You can get more of it in an hour's time watching the commercials, even if you find something decent. The average magazine, the average newspaper, everything will show sexual content, nudity, all kinds of stuff. You are being bombarded with it. And the sad thing is most Christians are just participating in it. They allow this stuff to come into their home. They expose their little tiny children to it and then wonder why they're having problems. 
Say, that's just stupid. They're doing spiritual warfare and binding the demons so that their children will grow up to be godly people, and then you're letting Satan just mainline his unbelief into them. You know, use that as a babysitter. Use Satan as a babysitter so that you don't have to pay any attention to him. I know I'm really blessing some of you. Amen. But you know, Galatians 4.16 says, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? It's the truth, brothers and sisters. I tell you what, we've allowed things to come at us, and we wonder why we are so tempted, why it's so hard. It's hard because we've all, Satan comes at us through the way we think. Satan can do nothing to you without your consent and cooperation. And the sad fact is we are cooperating great. We spend lots of money, thousands and thousands of dollars to get a big screen in so that we can really get the full effect of what Satan is wanting to say to us. I'm not against television. I'm on television. I'm just saying that there's a lot of junk on television, and every TV set I've ever seen had a remote or a on and off knob, a channel selector. You don't have to sit there and watch this ungodliness. You need to start being selective. You need to start choosing what controls you, recognizing that the way you think, as you think in your heart, that's the way you are. Your life is going to go the direction of your thoughts. And you can sit here and do spiritual warfare and bind this and rebuke that and plead with God and do all of these things. And it's going to be absolutely ineffective if your mind is filled with the junk of this world. You cannot be tempted with what you don't think. So quit thinking things that allow Satan to have dominance over you. The war is in your mind. 